Hi, Jim. Hi, Catherine. So, Jim, I've been following your Twitter recently. I've actually been checking in with it. And first of all, it's an odd mix of really earnest information and then really sort of like odd jokes. Yeah. Um, Welcome to my life. Yeah, it's a really unique mix, which some could say undermines your credibility as a as a medical professional. But Wait, does humor undermine your credibility? credibility or yeah i feel like you're supposed to be like a robot like a fact oh. robot and people are like i trust that guy have i ever but if you been have a that? personality you become untrustworthy right so my idea is that there are plenty of people out there doing that and we need lots of different styles of communication if there were like here's the one way that science-minded people communicate and if you don't like that you're not you gonna don't like, like science. science yeah right <laughs> I mean, obviously, I can only talk to you because you make stupid jokes. So, okay, so speaking of scientific information and it being verifiable or not, I've been following your Twitter, and you've been tweeting about hydroclox- hydro- oh, no. <laughs> hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> it's hard to say. Someone it's last time emailed us and said that they thought you were being affected in your inability to pronounce that. And I was like, no, she just really can't. Anyway, I got it down now. Hydroxychloroquine. You tweeted about it. And, you know, I follow your replies. I like seeing you engage with your people. And I just wanted to read you a couple of tweets that people tweeted back at you. (laughs) Okay. Let's see. So you said, don't take an experimental drug just because the president tells you to. And And then you link to your article about what we actually know about hydroxychloroquine. Yeah, which was like a long and kind of nuanced piece. I wasn't just dashing off like, I I don't think it works, you know. Right. Yeah, okay. I mean, there were a lot of responses, and I'll read several of them, but I think one of the most um, direct and clear was from Judu Sumu. The uh, Twitter reply is, and why should we take advice from you? <laughs> And sorry, did this person have any American flags or eagles in their bio? Let's see. Um, Judasumu is an egg. You know, no picture, no description. One follower. So do you think that's a real person? How would I know? I mean, my Twitter basically looked like this for most of its existence. That's true. Here's another one. It's not experimental. You said don't take an experimental <laughs> drug. This one says it's not experimental. What does that mean? Before we get into what this is, I just I just have to read you one more. Oh, please. Um, this one's from Oleg. There is evidence. You just don't want to see it because of TDS. Do you know what is accusing you of having TDS, <laughs> which is a condition? Uh, Trump derangement syndrome. I know. I don't know what it means. Where have you been? I knew about chloroquine before Trump even mentioned it. Oh, wow. So do you know what's going on with your tweets, Jim? I mean, do you know, do you get these kinds of sort of haters frequently? <laughs> this is not new to me entirely, but it's it's very new to me to feel this about like the efficacy of an immunomodulatory drug or an antiviral drug about whether it works. I'm used to disagreement around facts. Like some people will... Mm-hmm see a study and want to interpret it a certain way and think, oh, this is 
worth trying and other people will disagree and say, well, you know, I don't think it's worth trying. I think we need to wait until there's more data. But this is more like if you question that this is a miracle drug, it means you are a liberal hate monger. And it's presupposing the premise like where I'm coming from versus assuming that we're all looking at the same data and we're just interpreting it in different ways. Right. right. Yeah. So I think the person who can help us solve this mystery of what's going on with your Twitter replies is McKay Coppins. No, he's been on the show before. McKay Coppins is a staff writer who covers politics. So McKay's going to tell us, hopefully, what's going on with your tweets. God, I hope so. Because I can't check my replies right now. It's stressful. Hey, McKay. Hello. Hey. Hey, Mateo. Hey, how are you? I'm fine. How are you guys? Oh, no. Fine. <laughs> no. Like, I'm a grading responses on the corona curve, and fine means bad, <laughs> right? Um, I've just been <laughs> writing and editing and not sleeping very much this week. So oh, man, same. But you got a basement full of food, or a, a garage full of canned <laughs> goods. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so at least I can rest easy on that front. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Here's the deal, McKay. So Jim and I talked, like, last week about hydroxychloroquine. I heard. A word I know how to say. He had been tweeting about it, and I was checking out his Twitter responses. And can I just read you a couple real quick? Um, And why should we take advice from you? Um, Here's another one. It's not experimental. Here's another one. There is evidence, you just don't want to see it because of TDS, Trump derangement syndrome. Which I'm taking hydroxychloroquine to address. (laughs) Listen, so I'm fine to believe that just like there's a group of people who who are really irritated by Jim on Twitter. Like that could be possible. But I wanted to ask you if there could be something else going on. Well, there probably is. So... Hydroxychloroquine, just to back up, as you guys know, has kind of become this like front in the pandemic culture wars, right? Um, so ever since President Trump has sort of invested himself in the idea that it, it could be a miracle cure, a miracle drug, you know, the whole kind of MAGA movement has rallied around it. And it's become a, uh, you know, frequent subject of discussion on Fox News, on talk radio, uh, you can go through kind of the really high-profile MAGA social media personalities, and they're all, like, cranking out memes about how great this drug is. And there's a lot of misinformation floating around on social media, uh, particularly uh, this talking point that it has a 100% success rate in treating uh, COVID-19, which is just, I mean, I will refer to you, Dr. Hamblin, but I mean, that's pretty clearly not true. No, yeah, yeah, I know. I should clarify. That comes from Dr. Oz, of all people. So what's happening is there are at least some Twitter accounts that appear to have been designed just in the last kind of couple of months exclusively to boost this drug. And then there's a lot of people advocating for it for political purposes, which is that they want to validate or vindicate President Trump. And then there's probably also a group of people who genuinely believes in it. But a lot of the Twitter activity, social media activity around this drug is not exactly what it seems. 
Yeah. I got the sense because there were not a lot of like coherent responses and from people who seem real. And I, I, it's hard to say what makes you seem real on Twitter. Yeah. And I mean, look, I should stress that like it is actually very difficult to definitively say uh, whether any given Twitter account is real or not. Like there are some that are obviously bots, but a lot of them, the, the part of the thing that's happened in in kind of this world of professional trolling is that they've gotten a lot more sophisticated. So, you know, some things that seem real are not, some things that don't seem real uh, may actually be real and they're there to, you know, as a plant or a false flag. Anyway, it gets very complicated, but the point is that a lot of the kind of conversation around this drug on Twitter and elsewhere in social media is not really being had in good faith, which maybe is not that shocking, but I think it's important to kind of show. Is this just a Twitter thing? Oh, definitely not. I mean, it's if you turn on Fox News, if you listen to conservative talk radio, if you spend time on certain Facebook groups, this conversation is taking place everywhere. And there are people driving this agenda in kind of a sophisticated way, honestly, and seem to be kind of convincing a lot of people who want to believe it. For me, the consistent theme I see is just like sowing chaos, just wanting people to appear uh, divided along partisan lines, appearing, wanting people to appear to disagree for for yeah. almost no reason at all. Like, why do you mobilize these bots around it? It's, it's, a, it's a generic drug. No pharmaceutical company stands to massively profit off this. It, they're, they're, I can't follow any motive other than that, like, we want people to appear divided. We want a divided America along partisan lines, and here's one way we can do it. Yeah, these are in politics, these are called wedge issues, right? Like candidates seek out specific wedge issues to create a division and stake out your position on one side of the divide. Hmm. And uh, when the debate is about, you know, educational reform or uh, taxes or whatever, there clearly are real ideological dividing lines. And it makes sense that, uh, you know, you would want to create a wedge and force a debate or a conversation. But but when you apply that kind of political tactic to a an unproven drug, uh, it, it's a whole different situation, right? You're, you're fanning the flames of division around something that is not ideological. It's not political or partisan. It's a matter of science and we don't have uh, enough scientific data to uh, prove what, you know, one side is arguing for. And so instead, it just becomes an online shouting match and turns it into a way to, you know, demonize the other side or prop up your own side. And that is definitely what's happening. You know, I always think about, uh, (laughs) not to make this too philosophical, but I always think about Hannah Arendt, the you know, political theorist who wrote about uh, the big, you know, successful totalitarian regimes of the 20th century. And she wrote that the purpose of propaganda is not to instill conviction. It's to destroy the capacity to form any. You're just trying to make people cynical enough that they're incapable of grasping a certain idea or reality. You just want people to be malleable and cynical. So if you just flood them with a certain message, like at the right time, you can get them to act in a certain way. Yeah, exactly. So there are Twitter bots, there are Facebook groups, there are, you know, sort of like actual people out in the world, like Dr. Oz, who are pushing a message. Um, Where does this disinformation playbook 
come from? Like, this isn't the first time we've seen something like this, right? Definitely not. The kind of foundational principles of propaganda were invented centuries ago by autocratic regimes. Um, and you can actually really go through every successful dictatorship in you know, modern world history and see that they all kind of follow roughly the same playbook. Who, right? who kind of invented the playbook? Like what kinds of leaders that I might know from history? Mao, Lenin, Mussolini, Hitler, like Mm -hmm. these are the 20th century ones. If you go back further, it becomes a little more complicated. Like if you go into the 18th century or 17th century, it becomes a little more complicated because there wasn't the kind of expectation of freedom uh, and certainly not the mass spread of information that there is now. But that's what's actually interesting about this particular playbook, because if you talk to scholars who study propaganda and disinformation, what they'll say is that up until pretty recently, most autocratic regimes or even just kind of illiberal uh, political leaders would try to censor dissenting voices and inconvenient information, right? Mm -hmm. They would shut down opposition newspapers and throw journalists and political dissidents in jail. And that's how they kind of maintained control and power. What you've seen in the last kind of 10 or 20 years is that a lot of the illiberal regimes around the world uh, have realized that in this era of what's called information abundance, where everybody has the internet, everyone has social media, everyone has TV and radio and books, and it's very hard to fully contain the spread of information. Mm -hmm. It's much more effective to flood the zone with lots and lots and lots of content and propaganda and disinformation and noise and what uh what this called is censorship through noise so basically you're drowning out the dissenting voices rather Mm -hmm. than kind of throwing them in jail and that's sort of the playbook you know i remember one time i had a conversation with someone who was from china who grew up in china and we were talking about sort of the misinformation in Chinese media and sort of state-controlled media and things like that. And, you know, I was like, oh, well, you know, that seems so disorienting. And I remember she said, well, in China, we just know not to trust it. Mm. But in the U.S., you st- you actually believe the things you hear. Yeah, that, that's a that's such a good insight. I'm wondering what you think about that and if, like, if if we are more vulnerable to misinformation or disinformation, almost because of our autocracy naivete? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, this is a really good insight and an important point. You know, I do think that that is a major problem in our society. And it's born out of something good, which is that compared to a lot of other parts of the world, we're actually not used to our own government kind of waging coordinated disinformation campaigns against right. us. Um, we, we, we still like keep being shocked and are like, wait, well, I mean, it came from a government official. Right. I mean, you know, that's not to say government officials haven't lied. Like US right, government totally. officials have lied forever. But the kind of sophisticated, coordinated, concerted disinformation campaign aimed at the American population is a relatively new phenomenon for us. If you compare 
us as a people to, for example, people in Eastern Europe or the Baltic countries who have spent generations dealing with Russian disinformation and Russian Mm -hmm. propaganda, you'll find that they are a lot more savvy about it and frankly, a lot more cynical. Uh, We also have this kind of fundamental belief, which I think is generally good in free speech. The First Amendment is part of our kind of founding ethos. We really believe that, uh, you know, dissenting voices and opinions shouldn't be censored. And we kind of instinctively push back against any effort to censor uh, speech. But that is like a sort of ethic that comes from a time when the tool of control was censorship rather than flooding. Exactly. And you read like all the famous novels that are about future dystopias, 1984, right? And Mm -hmm. they're all very concerned with censorship, like the state coming in and burning books or, you know, sticking old newspaper articles down the memory hole, right? Right, right. That's kind of, that idea colors so much of the literature about authoritarianism. Uh, But in this modern era, that's really not how it works, at least not in most democratic or or ostensibly democratic countries. Right. Uh, Not to look for some sort of tidy (laughs) solution, but I mean, it seems to me incredibly unlikely that we're somehow going to like regulate the Internet in a way or like come up with a whole new way of like regulating truthful speech (laughs) or something. I mean, it kind of seems like we're stuck with this Mm -hmm. as a tactic and really we need to just figure out how to respond. Is that, first of all, is that fair? Like, or is there some magical way we could like stop this from happening? I mean, no, I mean, look, I talk to a lot of experts uh, when I've been reporting on this and they all have their own ideas, you know, but like, I I don't know. I'm pretty cynical about all of those. I think that, uh, in the best case, they'll help on the margins. And in the worst case uh, scenario, they actually will kind of curtail free speech in a way that I'm not right. comfortable with. Right. So I think, yeah, we're probably stuck with this ecosystem. Does a functional democracy depend on a shared sense of reality? My answer to this is yes. You know, I think that the entire American experiment is premised to a certain extent on the marketplace of ideas and free debate and free exchange of views. But I think the marketplace of ideas only works if objective reality serves as a regulating force, right? We all Mm -hmm. have to be starting from the same set of basic facts to have these big important ideological debates or political debates or whatever. And if we all have our own tailor-made set of facts or, you know, fake facts, (laughs) alternative facts, Mm -hmm. then it effectively makes it impossible for us to reach consensus on any issues. Right. You're, you're, you spend all your time arguing about the premise of the question rather than the answer to the question. Exactly. Sounds like Catherine. (laughs) (laughs) I was away for a bit on an interview Well, we're all done. We're letting McKay go. Well, I'm going to assume that you said really good stuff, and thank you for coming on the podcast. (laughs) 
<laughs> do you want to plug the interview you did in the middle of this interview so we could all go check it out? Um, I was just talking to a doctor at Northwestern who gave me a lot of uh, curious pause about the future of our ability to do anything in medicine. Oh my God. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Good news. Forthcoming story. Um, thank you. Thank you, McKay. Yeah, thank you, guys. What did you talk about? What We talked about the nature of reality, autocracy, democracy, history, propaganda. Uh, I let you um, get too abstract when I was gone. Yeah, I love a big idea. I you know. know. Yeah, I know. Um, so I, I feel like I understand some of the responses to your tweets better now. They may or may not be part of a large disinformation architecture that is used quite a bit by the Trump campaign for re-election, but also by many other factions, states, political groups. Um, And I think what I learned from McKay is that the only way to fight this is to fight for shared sets of facts and reality. Hmm. And... That seems harder said than done. Easier harder, said than done. Easier said than done. Or in your case, harder. <laughs> That's good. What about the Twitter replies to me that are all like, um, you know, stop harassing The Rock, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. You know, you need to stop or you're going to be arrested. Jim, this is why humor is dangerous, <laughs> especially on an episode about misinformation. Unless people have a really, really excellent, like, sort of irony radar, it may seem as if you're being very confusing yourself. Yeah. The point is, nobody's tweeted at you about The Rock. (laughs) But we would like to have The Rock on if anybody knows The Rock. (laughs) This show today is produced by Kevin Townsend with Anna Waters and Jacqueline Landry. If you, uh, not to be too salesy about it, but if you do want to support facts and an institution that is attempting to build some sense of reality or at least grapple with the places that are, where that's difficult, you can subscribe to The Atlantic. If you're in a position to support The Atlantic, you can do that at theatlantic.com slash support us. All right. Talk okay. to you later. Bye. 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 Bye.